So tonight I want to begin by talking a little bit about insight. You know, this is called insight meditation, um, which is an a English word taken from the Pali word vipassana, vipassana meditation. That's what it was called more when I started. And it is uh, translated as the, the meaning is to see clearly. So insight meditation is to see clearly into the truth of things. And as we sit and as we walk and as we practice in silence, we have insights on many different levels. We have insights into uh, psychological issues. We have insights into relational issues. We have insights into uh, our past, uh, patterns of... uh, thinking and feeling that have been with us for a long time. We have insights into decisions or choices that we need to make in our lives or health issues. All kinds of insights come to us and they're really useful. They're really helpful. And I'm sure many of you who've practiced here before know what I'm speaking about. But the primary aim of insight practice or Vipassana is insight into what are called the three characteristics of reality. What are they? Insights into the truth of impermanence. Insights into the truth of suffering. And insight into the truth of not-self. In the Pali language, this is anicca, impermanence. Dukkha, suffering, anatta, the teaching of not-self. So this is what I want to talk to you about, explore with you tonight. And this is a big subject. So this is the tip of the iceberg that I will be um, speaking about. But they're pointers to a direction for our practice, to know that this is the aim of our practice, to begin to understand in our personal experience how these principles are operating. Kali Rinpoche said, we live in illusion and the appearance of things. The Buddha described three specific ways we live in illusion, three ways in which our perception of reality is distorted. They are the three characteristics, seeing permanence where there is only impermanence, seeing happiness where there is actually a kind of suffering, seeing that the self seeing a self where there is no self to be found. He described these actually quite vividly as three hallucinations of perception. We hallucinate permanence. We hallucinate happiness. We hallucinate a self. That's a pretty startling kind of uh, presentation, isn't it? What do you mean I hallucinate? It's, you know, it, it may seem um, quite uh, a strong statement, and it is. So, 
the importance of these three to contemplate, to begin to practice with, is that they correct this tendency towards hallucination, towards uh, seeing uh, our illusions about life. How we have believed in things that actually uh, are untrue. It is said in the scriptures that liberation, that freedom, that awakening does not come without the realization of these three characteristics. They are pointers to the way things really are. They are a deep and true description of reality. They are a portal or a doorway to liberation. Liberation doesn't occur without deeply understanding the truth of these three marks of existence. Everyone, without exception, every being is subject to the fact of impermanence, the fact of suffering, the fact of not-self. No one is exempt. These are universal truths. And however, when we experience one of them, or all of them in our lives, loss, aging, suffering of illness, the ephemeral nature of our sense of identity, it seems very personal. Like, I'm the only one. Or why me? Why, why, am, why is this happening to me? In one sense, it is personal, and we need to meet our personal experience with mindfulness, with compassion, but we also are asked to open to the universal dimension of the experience. It is only an opening to the universality of these three characteristics through our direct personal experience is their liberation is their actual freedom. Tonight I want to look into these three characteristics one by one with you and explore them a little, and particularly in relationship to this phase of life, particularly in relationship to aging. So the, the first one I'm going to talk about is the, uh, the, the truth of dukkha, suffering that it is present in our lives and we don't always know what to do about it or why it's there or how to alleviate it. We are confused, you could say, about where true happiness and satisfaction actually lie. There is one statement of the Buddhas that puts it very succinctly. He said, what the world calls happiness I call suffering. What the world calls suffering, I call happiness. Wow. That is quite a statement. What does the world call happiness? We could say, there are many ways to answer this, but we could say, sense pleasures. Basically what the world calls happiness is the pursuit 
of pleasant sights, pleasant tastes, pleasant sounds, pleasant thoughts, pleasant sensations, pleasant experiences of all kinds that make us feel good. The enjoyment of sense pleasures is primarily what we orient to as the way to be happy. But the fly in the ointment is what? These pleasures, as wonderful as they are, as fulfilling as they can be, do not last. They are subject to the law of impermanence. They arise and they pass. And because of that, we get into a cycle of always wanting. When one desire has been satiated, we then begin the search for the next and the next and the next. Think back over your life at all the pleasures you have had in your wonderful lives. I mean, it's probably quite a list. And that's a lovely thing. But where are they now? What lasting happiness have they brought to you? What brings pleasure now in this stage of life is very different than when we were young. Carl Jung made this observation when he said, what is a normal goal to a young person becomes a neurotic hindrance in old age. (laughs) And this seems true to me. If I think as a 74-year-old woman, I were still pursuing the uh, romantic fantasies and ambitions of my youth, you know, people would think that's pretty strange, and I would think it's pretty strange. But this is how it is for some old people. The kinds of pleasures you now enjoy probably are quite different than when you were young. There's a saying, absence of pleasure is a pain when you are young. Absence of pain is a pleasure (laughs) when you are old. We all know this, don't we? You tell that to a young person, they don't, you know, doesn't register so clearly. The culture we live in and the economy that we participate in are intoxicated by the search for for sense pleasures. Intoxicated by desire, we become obsessed, seeking more, more, always more, whether it be for food or sex or power or Uh, attention of various kinds or material possessions or just the activity of shopping itself is a very desirable thing to do. When is enough enough? When is enough enough? That is the koan, it seems to me, for our entire world. When is enough enough? When do we find the, the end of that search for more? So lately, in several conversations with people our age, people over 60, say, uh, quite spontaneously, out of the blue, 
the same subject keeps appearing over and over in conversations I'm having with people about suddenly the need to deal with the accumulation of stuff. Oh my God, I've got this attic full of things and stuff from years and I've got the garage and I've got the files and I've got the storage space and all the boxes and I've got to get on top of it. I've got to, you know, begin to go through it and sort through it and get rid of all this stuff. Do you relate to this? These conversations are appearing and they're, they're recognition of, of the need to, to let go. That this accumulation, you know, is not going to serve many more purposes. So we may go out to the garage or up to the attic or into the storage space and we then have to go through the boxes or the closets or the files or whatever it is. And then what happens? What happens as we go through those boxes? Oh my, oh my God, I'd forgotten all about this. You know, pictures of Aunt Hetty on our trip to Bermuda and, you know... <laughs> And suddenly you're faced with all these memories and then the the decision about what to do with the stuff, you know, should I keep it? Oh, I can't throw it out. That would be terrible. This is a family treasure. Nobody ever wants it in the family, but we have to keep it because it goes back to, you know, our ancestors and who am I going to give it to? And, you know, we get into all these decisions about the stuff of our lives. Or our diplomas and our, you know, high school certificates of achievement in badminton or something. You know, what? Oh, I can't throw that out. It's, it's about me. It's mine. It's my life, you know. So we are faced with this accumulation from the past. I think of clean... I've done a lot of cleaning out. I think of it as a kind of archaeological dig. You know, you go through layers of different time periods in your life. And little by little, let it go. But there are some things that don't seem to want to leave so easily and that perhaps we don't know what to do with. So we keep them. So there is a shedding process that somehow begins to appear as necessary at this stage of our lives. It may reflect also some inner need for letting go. And then there are also some things about aging that we are told we should try to hold on to, like our looks, our capacity, our cognitive skills, our memories, our balance, our mobility, our flexibility, that maybe these are good things to not just, you know, see in the the light of um, impermanence and letting go. It seems true that there are some things that we need to also pay attention to as worth cultivating, as worth um, uh, keeping in our, as, as, as well we can under our, as part of our abilities. It seems like a good thing to take care of the body, to keep it mobile, flexible, strong, 
It seems like a good thing to encourage cognitive competence. It seems like a good thing to try to be wise about money and all those things that are needed for old age. So in some sense, it's a time in our lives for sorting out what to let go of, what to keep holding on, where to give our attention to. When is it time to pass on grandmother's china or the boyhood collection of, you know, model trains? Or when is it time to go to the gym and strengthen our muscles? There's a lot to sort out. So what the world calls suffering, I call happiness. That was the Buddha's declaration. So there's a story from the Buddhist time that illustrates this quite nicely. There was a student of the Buddha's called Badia Kaligoda, and he was a gentleman who had been a, a business person, and he gave it all up and came into the forest to practice with the other monks. And he Uh, would meditate in the forest with the other monks and they would always hear, the other monks would hear him whispering to himself saying, what bliss, what bliss, what bliss. And they thought that was rather strange. So they went to the Buddha and told the Buddha that this guy is always saying to himself, what bliss, what bliss. So the Buddha had him come and, and asked Kali Goda about this. He said, Is it true, Badia, that in going into the forest you utter, Ah, what bliss, what bliss. Yes, revered sir. But, Badia, what do you see that prompts you to do so? And here is his reply to the Buddha. Formerly, revered sir, when I was a householder and enjoyed the bliss of royalty inside and outside, my inner apartments, in inside and outside my inner apartments, guards were appointed to protect my possessions. Inside and outside, the city guards were appointed. Inside and outside, the district guards were appointed. But, revered sir, although I was thus guarded and protected, I lived fearful, agitated, distrustful, and afraid. But now, revered sir, on going alone into the forest, to the foot of a tree, or to an empty place, I am fearless, unagitated, confident, and unafraid. I live unconcerned, unruffled, my needs satisfied. Seeing all this, revered sir, is what prompts me to utter constantly, Ah, what bliss, what bliss. What the world calls suffering would be, you could say, what you all are doing right here on this retreat. You are coming to a retreat center where you are in silence. You are practicing sitting and walking in silence. I mean, how many of your your friends or neighbors are just like rooting for you, you know, when you come here? Wow, that's great. Maybe they think rather it's like, you really won't like that? You like being in silence? What's wrong with you? (laughs) Living simply, 
practicing letting go, opening yourself to hearing the message of non-harming, of letting go, of practicing generosity. This is not a common uh, value in our culture. I remember many uh, years ago when I was on a long retreat at Insight Meditation in Barrie, um, in the middle of it, my birthday came, and I got a, a birthday card from my niece, who I think at the time was about 10 years old. And she said on, her, on the birthday card, she said, do they make you be quiet on your birthday too? <laughs> Very much reflecting that idea that this is some kind of weird punishment that I was undergoing by being on a retreat and not talking. What the world calls suffering, I call happiness. Here's what Ryokan said. He, is, he was a Japanese monk who lived utterly simply, utterly simply, with a robe and a bowl, and he loved writing poetry, so he had some writing materials, but that was about it. He begged every day for his food. But he lived very happily up in the mountains. So he says this, My house is buried in the deepest recess of the forest. Every year, ivy vines grow longer than the year before. Undisturbed by the affairs of the world, I live at ease. Woodmen singing rarely reaching me through the trees. While the sun stays in the sky, I mend my torn clothes And facing the moon, I read holy texts aloud to myself. Let me drop a word of advice for you seekers. To enjoy life's immensity, you do not need many things. A Tibetan teacher by the name of Shabkar gives us this advice. Though we have provisions for a hundred or a thousand years, on the threshold of death, we will have to abandon them all. Though we have a wardrobe sufficient to clothe us for a hundred years, on the threshold of death, we will be naked. Though we have in our possession a hundred or a thousand pieces of gold or silver, on the threshold of death, our hands will be empty. Though we may be surrounded by a hundred or a thousand relatives and friends, on the threshold of death, we will be alone. That is the way it is. So as we age and we think about our future, we may have a lot of thoughts about who is going to take care of me. What kind of care will I need? And in our culture, we think a lot about this, this as uh, taking care of the body as we, as we get old and feeble, mostly from the perspective of Western medicine. So for the body, what, what is offered are drugs. The famous, you know, senior prescription, the famous drug, prescription drug benefit 
for seniors that is supposed to be, you know, wow, we got it all now, we got our drugs. But from the Dharma perspective, perspective, this is not the most important thing. This is not the most important thing. More important is the mind. And, and the, they mean heart-mind. When in the Dharma world, mind mean, includes the heart. Our most intimate companion as we approach uh, old age, illness, dying, is the mind, this mind, our own mind. So the encouragement is that we focus there. In the Nakula Pita Sutta, the Buddha gives an instruction to an old man about the attitude he should have as his body weakens or gets ill. The Buddha said to this man, Though my body is sick, my mind shall not be sick. Thus, householder, you must train yourself. Though my body is sick, my mind shall not be sick. What does that mean? The Buddha said, No other thing do I know which brings so much suffering as an uncultivated and undeveloped mind. No other thing do I know which brings so much happiness is a cultivated and developed mind. This is the perspective of Dharma practice. Learning to cultivate this dear mind so that it has qualities that will help us in this journey to the end of life. Qualities of mind, of patience, of love, of forgiveness, of Tolerance of delight, of joy, of sense of belonging. All of these beautiful qualities of mind that we are cultivating here on retreat together. Bringing that to the fore as what is most significant and most important as we continue our journey. So knowing what brings true happiness is a big part of Dharma practice. Knowing what brings true happiness. Lama Yeshe put it this way, more playfully. He said, chocolate comes, chocolate goes. Chocolate disappears. All such transient pleasures are like this. But take heart. There is another kind of happiness available to you a deep abiding joy that comes from your own mind. This kind of happiness is always with you, always available. Whenever you need it, it's always there. So the second of these three characteristics, the second way we misperceive reality is that we take what is inherently impermanent to be permanent. Now we all know that things change. Anybody you spoke to on the street would agree with that, things change. Oh yeah, things change. 
So it seems like, okay, yeah, so, so what? We can easily nod our heads and say, yes, things change. But the, but the, the Dharma asks us to take another look and, and ask, do we live from the really, the place of really knowing the truth of change? Stephen Levine, the man who used to teach um, many uh, courses on death and dying back in the 70s, 80s, he tells a story of one time standing in front of a large audience of, of people and saying to them, how many of you are going to die? And he said it took a really long time for people to raise their hands. We kind of get it, but do we really get it? There is a Japanese aesthetic called wabi-sabi. Maybe some of you know this. Anybody here know wabi-sabi? Yeah, a few of you. Um, and it, celeb- it, it, it is a celebration of the fact of Anicca as it manifests in the physical world. Objects which are worn, which show their age, are highly revered and prized as demonstrating the truth of Anicca. Um, like I was looking at the bench out here in the courtyard today, and it's very weathered. Now, from our kind of Western view, we could look at that weathered uh, wooden bench and think, oh, that needs refinishing. We need to spruce it up, protect it from the elements, you know, repair it, make it look new again. That's our Western view. But in Japan, they would look at that and see the beauty of the weathering of the wood, the the sense that this is the truth of the way things are, that things are not uh, shiny and bright and immune to the effects of weather and age. And in our world, we focus, don't we, on the young, the new, the, the shiny, the unblemished, and we do this in, in terms of our looks as well. We don't like to um, appear old, do we? Notice that? There's a cartoon from, um, I think it was from the New Yorker, of a young couple sitting in front of a minister talking about their marriage ceremony. And they say to him, We'd like you to leave out the poor sickness and death parts. They're a little dark. (laughs) This is what our culture would like to do with aging, you know, with aging, with illness, with death. Leave it out. Let's just leave that part out. It's a little dark. Whenever we are pursuing something we really, really want, we are sort of 
lost in some idea that that thing, whatever it is, is going to provide us with a kind of enduring satisfaction that it cannot possibly. So here's a cover of the New Yorker magazine of the snowman lusting after the snow woman. And we all know how that's going to turn out. Hot, hot, hot. It's one, one impermanent person lusting after another. But this is the nature of desire, that it, it propels us into this kind of trance of believing in something. So in Dharma practice, instead of... Um, instead of saying it's a little dark, I don't want to go there, I don't want to look at it, we are encouraged to bring it out into the light of awareness, to make the fact of impermanence a a contemplation, a reflection, a reminder. And so in the Buddhist tradition, there are many, many reminders of the fact of change, of impermanence. There are many... uh, Uh, reflections that are done in the monasteries of Asia. There's a chant called Anicca Vata Sankara that I would like to teach you all, actually. Um, Tonight, maybe at the late night sitting, we'll do it together. All things are impermanent. They arise and they pass away. To be in harmony with this truth brings great happiness. That is a chant that's chanted every, every day as a reminder of the truth of it, not to hide from it, not to pretend that it doesn't exist, but to, to open to it, to keep opening to it, so that we're, we're working to penetrate this illusionary idea of things being permanent and uh, a- capable of bringing enduring satisfaction. In the Zen tradition, um, every day they, they, there's a chant that goes, Life and death are of supreme importance. Take heed, do not squander your life. This precious human life is reflected on over and over again as something that will help to wake us up to what the truth is. Dingo Kensi Rinpoche wrote this, he said, Ask yourself how many of the billions of the inhabitants of the planet have any idea of how rare it is to have been born as a human being. How many of those who understand the rarity of human birth ever think of using that chance to practice the Dharma? How many of those who think of practice actually do practice? How many of those who start really continue? How many of those who practice continue and attain ultimate realization? As long as you fail to recognize the true value of human existence, you will just fritter your life away in futile activity and distraction. When life comes all too soon to its inevitable end, you will not have achieved anything worthwhile at all. 
But once you really see the unique opportunity that human life can bring, you will definitely direct all your energy into reaping its true worth. So I don't know about you, but when I hear that, I think, wow, that's something worth contemplating. That kind of sense of inspiration about practice, about what we, what we can accomplish in our practice. <clears throat> Ramdas, our dear friend, said it well. He said, aging is suffering if you haven't made friends with change. Many of the changes of aging we experience as loss. There's a lot of loss now, isn't there? Loss of our body's beauty, its physical prowess, loss of our energy, our hormones, our hormone levels, our eyesight, our memory, loss of dear ones, loss of pets, loss of homes, loss of the roles that we played for so long in our lives, the loss of people asking you, what do you think about this? Does anybody want to hear from you? (laughs) There's a poem by Elizabeth Bishop where she really looks at this, 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 loss that becomes that can become a very predominant part of this phase of life it's called one art she writes the art of losing isn't hard to master so many things seem filled with the intent to be lost that their loss is no disaster lose something every day accept the fluster of lost door keys the hour badly spent The art of losing isn't hard to master. Then practice losing farther, losing faster. Places and names and where it was you meant to travel. None of these will bring disaster. I lost my mother's watch. And look, my last or next to last of three loved houses went. The art of losing isn't hard to master. I lost two cities, lovely ones and vaster, some realms I own, two rivers, a continent. I miss them, but it wasn't a disaster. Even losing you, the joking voice, a gesture I love, I shan't have lied. It's evident the art of losing's not too hard to master, though it may look like, like a disaster. I love the way you get to see her working in her own way, in her own heart and mind, with the perspective on her losses, having endured so many. We have all seen and experienced so much change, so much loss. Pema Chodron says, it's not impermanence per se or even knowing we're going to die that is the cause of our suffering. It's our resistance to change which is suffering. 
But when we can completely let go and not struggle against it, when we can embrace the groundlessness of our situation and relax into it, Oh boy, we got a problem here. Somehow page eight got left out. Maybe it's here. (laughs) Talking about loss, I've lost part of my Dharma talk. Isn't that something? Well, this is part of what we deal with. Anyway, she's saying here... um, this thing about, um, (laughs) oh, here it is. Okay. When we can embrace the groundlessness of our situation and relax into its dynamic quality, that is called freedom. That is called freedom. When we can allow the truth of it to penetrate our being. Achan Shah, the forest, Thai forest uh, teacher, he said, looking for certainty in that which is inherently uncertain, you are bound to suffer. Okay, so impermanence, this, this invitation to contemplate, to reflect, to practice with, to turn towards the fact of ceaseless change is, a, is the second characteristic we are encouraged to, to look at. The third is this uh, misperception of taking what is not self to be self. The third characteristic of anatta. Taking what is not self to be self. Every time we identify with a thought, a sensation, an emotion and say, that's me or that's mine. We are constructing an idea that may not be true. We have many unquestioned beliefs and assumptions about ourselves. We think we know things about ourselves that may not be true. For example, like who we are now, that we are getting old. What kind of beliefs do you have about who you are now? Or your life? My life is over. I'll never be happy as I was when X, Y, Z. No one will ever love me again. I'm all alone. I have nothing left to contribute. I'm done. It's all over. Do you see how these ideas that we may bump into now and then, maybe you have your particular beliefs and assumptions that are a kind of suffering when we take them on as real, as true, as a definition of who we are now. When we were younger, we had other stories, did we not? Perhaps a story of pride about our physical prowess or the beauty of our body or our sexual magnetism. We had other stories then. We thought that was who we were. We had pride in our youth itself or in our health, our energy, our capacity, our ability to do what others could not do. Where is all that now? 
Where did it go? Perhaps now we can look back and see how it was just a story based on conditions, the conditions of being young and energetic and full of dreams and fantasies about life. How we got identified with a story that we thought would last forever. You notice that? Remember the song? There was a song from so long ago. I think it was from uh, the, the Broadway show called Fame. I'm going to sing it to you. <laughs> sort of. <laughs> I'm going to live forever. I'm going to learn how to fly. I feel it coming together. People will see me and cry. I'm going to make it to heaven, light up the sky like a flame. I'm going to live forever, baby, remember my name. Remember that song? You know that sentiment, I'm going to live forever. It's so so imbued with our young sensibility. The story that we thought would go on and on forever. Where is it? What happened to it? Some people take it very personally when their story changes. I, have, uh, I had a student who told me a story about her father when he was dying. Her father had been a very hard-charging, very successful uh, CEO. I think he was an oil man or something. Very, you know, I'm going to live forever. And then he got some kind of, you know, diagnosis and was, was dying. And as he lay there dying, he kept saying to his daughter, what did I do wrong? What did I do wrong? As if somehow, you know, this was a mistake. So in the field of medicine, there are different assessments of the moment of death. There's one definition of death is when the breath stops. Another definition of death is when the heart stops. Another definition is when the brain shows no signs of functioning. One author suggests there are actually three deaths that occur in a human life. The first death is when the brain ceases functioning. The second death is when the body is cremated or buried. The third death and final death is when your name is spoken for the last time on planet Earth. How does this hit you? Well, yeah, really. Your name never again spoken No one living knows you even were here. But this is some kind of truth, isn't it? That the story of me told by myself or others will one day no longer exist. It will disappear into the vast silence. So in our practice, when something ends, whether it is something pleasant and desirable or something unpleasant and unwanted, at the end, 
When something disappears, there is silence. How do we relate to that silence? Sometimes silence can seem fearful when when we lose something pleasant and there's suddenly silence. We may want to immediately fill it up again, write another story, fill it, you know, bring forth something to make it seem like me. Other times when something really unpleasant has ended, the silence may feel like a tremendous relief. It can be experienced as a a fullness, an expansiveness, a vibrant quality, a a, a kind of whole, we feel held by the silence. So there are many different ways of experiencing this silence, this spaciousness of our being. Like when Franz was guiding you in this idea of the body not having edges, you know, feeling this this vibrant space, energetic space of your being that goes beyond the body, that fills the space. What might it be like to include an awareness of these in your practice? Leonard Cohen said, if you don't become the ocean, you'll be seasick every day. If you don't become the silence, the energetic space of your being, you'll be resisting it all the time, filling it with stories, fearing it. So I'd like to end with uh, Kalu Rinpoche. Again, he said, I'll finish the quote I started with. He said, We live in illusion and the appearance of things. There is a reality. We are that reality. When you understand this, you see that you are nothing. And being nothing, you are everything. That is all. Being nothing, you are everything. That is all. So let's just sit together for a moment.
Thank you for your attention. And we now have about 30 minutes for walking before our final sitting. And we will have the chant at the final sitting tonight, the Anicca chant. I'll have copies out outside the door for you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.